How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joined in conversation with Roger Lowenstein, a financial journalist whose work has appeared in many publications, including the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. He's the author of several books, most recently, Ways and Means, Lincoln and His Cabin, and the Financing of the Civil War. Mr. Lowenstein, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, David, it is my honor. Truly a pleasure. So let me ask you a bit about how you became a financial industry journalist. Uh, did you go to college and say, I want to be an expert in financial industry and write about it? And how did you come to that area of expertise? Well, not at all. I went to school, to college in the mid-70s, uh, a time of great uh, political upheaval and, and interest in the country. But uh, nobody talked about business, nobody was interested in it. I didn't know anybody in college who was going off to business school. I wanted to be a journalist. I was on the school paper. And... Uh, I actually went down to uh, Venezuela and got a job with a uh, an English language newspaper. And uh, I did what everybody in that situation should do. I wanted to start stringing for papers back home, including the Wall Street Journal. And it turned out they weren't very interested in, you know, who was winning political office for this or that seat in Caracas. But, but they were very interested in the oil industry down there. And uh, I eventually parlayed that into a job uh, on the Wall Street Journal. Uh, this is in the, the late, very late 70s and early 80s a time of um, much turmoil on Wall Street, uh, mergers, uh, raids, junk bonds, and so on. And, and um, I found that, that uh, financial journals could be just as, as compelling and interesting and, uh, and volatile as political journalism. So among the books you've written before, the ones we're going to talk about are book on uh, Warren Buffett. Is that right? That's correct. That was my first. And what were the other subjects of your other books? Let's see. Um, there were several on uh, financial collapses uh, uh, grouped as uh, siblings. The first of those was when Genius failed about the uh, hedge fund, long-term uh, LTCM, that uh, collapsed at in uh, 1998. Uh, there was a book on the pension crisis. Uh, there was one on the Wall Street crash in the in the mortgage era. Um, there was one on the on the history of the Federal Reserve, the the great effort to resist the anti-centralist, anti-Andrew Jacksonian current in this country and former Federal Reserve. And finally, of uh, this one, the Civil War. So let me ask you about this subject. I have read scores of books on the Civil War. I think I've read almost every book that can come out on the Civil War over many, many decades. I can't honestly say I had ever read a book on the financing of the Civil War. Were there a lot of books that I missed on the financing of the Civil War? Or how did you get the idea for writing a book about how the Civil War was actually financed? Well, th there were certainly some, uh, more for specialists and, and, and academics and so on. But the way I got the idea, I mentioned I had done a previous book on the formation of the Fed, which was founded in, in 1913. And to write that, I had to learn a little something about the system that the Fed replaced. 
And that system was known as national banking. It had been set up by a, a series of very complicated uh, laws during the Civil War by the Secretary of the Treasury, who was the architect of them, Salmon P. Chase. And I was very intrigued that, you know, when they had this war to fight, they had taken the time off from uh, military matters and emancipation and so on to set up a new financial system. And I looked more into it. I discovered that that had only really been the tip of the iceberg. There had been uh, four or five uh, seminal financial measures and quite a few other very important economic uh, measures. They had really um, reformed the basis of the U.S. government. And, and I thought, well, this has been a story I hadn't known, and I, and I thought it would be new to others. So let's talk about the Civil War at the outbreak. The presumption then, I think in the North certainly, and probably in Europe as well, was that the North would win pretty quickly because it had, it had three times as many people, many more uh, factories, uh, greater wealth, and a much better finance system was the presumption. But in your book, it you point out that the finance system was relatively modest. There wasn't a lot of money, and there were no real great taxes that were coming in on a regular basis to finance the war. So uh, what was the biggest surprise that you found when you were starting to do this book? Was it that the North was not as well financed as people had thought? Well, it was absolutely unprepared. In fact, if, if we don't call it the North, if we call it the Union, there was no Union in a financial sense. Every state had its own currency, actually many currencies. Every bank in each state had, had its own uh, currencies. There were no federal taxes. There, all there were, there were um, revenues collected on tariffs at the various ports, uh, some in the North, but a great uh, many in the South. Uh, there was no uniform currency. There, there was just no way of raising money. You think about the fact that the war ultimately cost not only more than was ever spent in every any previous budget, but more than all the budgets combined going back to 1789. You get a sense of the breadth and the, the difficulty of the challenge. So um, when Lincoln became president, um, he was already dealing with some of the states that had succeeded. He was not a finance person. So who did he rely on? to deal with finance. Who was the person that he said, figure out how to pay for this war? Well, he, he was not a finance person. He was an economics guy. The first two thirds of his career had focused on economic issues. Uh, on, he wanted a national bank on better credit. He wanted a tariff uh, to, to bring in revenues. So he wasn't a complete naive, but, but, but you're right. He, he had other things to do, namely uh, to find generals who could hopefully win some battles. And he relied on his secretary of the treasury, Salmon P. Chase, uh, Chase was a uh, an Ohioan, one of the defeated rivals for the nomination, who Lincoln uh, talked into uh, into becoming Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, never really got over the fact that it was Lincoln, not he, who was in the White House. But they made a very uh, productive, if uh, not always very cooperative, team. But Salmon Chase was not a finance person, really, was he? He was not somebody who worked on Wall Street and knew a lot about the ins and outs of raising money, did he? You're right. His great issue had been anti-slavery. In fact. Uh, he had been much more involved in the anti-slavery fight than Lincoln had been. Uh, he had, as a lawyer, he had defended uh, runaway slaves. Uh, he had written prolifically on it. Uh, he had really uh, broken ground in the anti-slavery movement. But Lincoln had a, you know, a funny way of, of making appointments, and uh, he recognized uh, Chase's brilliance, uh, his commitment to the Union, uh, his ability to work hard, and um, Chase's background financially was, uh, to the extent that he had one was completely opposite Lincoln's. He was a Jacksonian. He favored, um, he was not a fan of paper money, which as we'll see in this conversation became a very important uh, element. He was kind of a gold bug, which was not Lincoln. 
but but Lincoln really appointed him on faith. So let's put it in context. At the time of the Civil War's outbreak, there was no federal income tax. The only tax, as I understand it, was on import duties, and most of those were things being imported uh, into the South. So the South was the part of the country that was collecting those import duties. Is that more or less right or not? There were plenty of goods being imported in the North, but 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 a, a good amount of them went into the South. Uh, the South, uh, the so-called first shot happened uh, when uh, some of the ports in the South seized the, uh, the revenue there instead of returning it to Washington. And the North uh, immediately lost all the revenue coming into the South. And they really lost most of the other revenue because trade between the U.S. and Europe uh, came to pretty much of a standstill once the, the war broke out. So the North really had no revenue to go on. They had um, There had been some borrowings approved under President Buchanan, but the rate on those borrowings went up from 6% to 12%. Actually, some people offered to lend it at 30%, which was too high. Of course, it was, you know, uh, it was loan charging, but that shows you the lack of confidence that European lenders had uh, in the union. So what did Salmon Chase do? Did he say, we will raise taxes by borrowing money? And who was gonna lend him money for a war that wasn't clear in terms of the outcome? Well, the first thing he did was what every Secretary of the Treasury had done during prior wars, meaning the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, and so on. He went to the banks and he said, will you lend me your gold? That was the way prior wars had been financed. The problem was that this war was going to be a lot more expensive, and the banks in that era were small. Uh, nonetheless, uh, after some hard negotiations, they agreed to lend him $50 million in gold, which was a prodigious sum. And they had a dinner at the Willard Hotel in Washington after this, uh, they agreed to do this. And the head banker, John Stevens, banker in New York, said, Mr. Secretary, we've agreed to lend you uh, the prodigious sum of $50 million. That should be quite enough to fight your war. Don't come back. So I just have to tell you that before the war was over, that sum would be spent 60 times over, 6 over. So um, when he went through the initial $50 million, what did uh, Salmon Chase do to get more money? Well, first he went back for another $50 million. The banks were really running dry. They very grudgingly uh, agreed. They said that was really it. Uh, towards the end of the 1861, the first year of the war, uh, he went back one more time. Now really kicking and screaming, the banks agreed, but they didn't have enough gold this time. And they had to close their doors. The, the, the system in, in force then had been that any normal depositor uh, with a banknote could go to a bank and ask for gold. And once they saw that the federal government was borrowing all the bank's gold, they realized there wouldn't be enough gold for normal depositors. There was a run on the banks. Everybody wanted their gold back. And uh, you know what happens in a run. Uh, they had to close their doors. And, and suddenly, uh, Salmon Chase realized that there simply wasn't enough gold in circulation to finance the enormously greater financial needs that the government now had in the war. So we had to invent a new currency. And that currency was going to be paper. And uh, the, the big difference between this paper and any other paper before was they decided to make it legal tender. So it wouldn't be a paper you could go to the government for and say, we'll take gold for it. This was going to be legal tender itself. It was going to be as good as gold. And this was a revolutionary idea to people in the 19th century. Although, of course, the paper we use today, the dollars we use today are legal tender. You can't get gold for them. You can't get silver for them. 
Well, this type of paper tender, what was it called? Informally, they were called uh, greenbacks because they were green on the reverse, but, but, but they were called legal tender notes. This was so revolutionary. When the Legal Tender Act was debated early in, in 1862, uh, many of the congressmen, even in Lincoln and Chase's own Republican Party, objected. They said it would be immoral, immoral to call anything other than gold and silver legal tender. Uh, in fact, one of the congressmen said, uh, paper can no more be money than a contract to deliver flour can be flour itself. Paper is just a promise to deliver the real thing. But the fact was there wasn't enough of the real thing. And so the government for the first time had to say, this is going to be legal tender, not because it's gold, not because it's a precious metal, the standard of value since time immemorial. It's going to be uh, money by fiat of the United States government, backed not by metal, but by the full faith and credit of the United States government. It was a new experiment in money. Of course, as I said, it's, it's, it's what now every country around the world uses. So they're called greenbacks. Um, and how did they trade? Did they trade at the value of gold equivalent or did they trade at a discount? The idea was to keep them at par, 100 cents. Of course, they weren't the same as gold. Uh, anybody would rather have gold. But in the beginning, they traded very close. They traded like at 98 cents, something like that, uh, to a dollar's worth of gold. But as the war went on and as the the date when the war might be over and the union might begin to redeem these greenbacks seemed to recede and recede into the future. And the cost of the war went up and up and up. Uh, traders began to get afraid that these greenbacks wouldn't be so good and maybe they never would be redeemed. And the price fell to 80 cents and 60 cents. And finally, in the, uh, in the summer of 1864, this is in the, in the fourth year of the war, there just seemed to be no end in sight. It was widely assumed that Lincoln would lose the election. If he lost the election, the Democrats who beat him might make a might make a peace. There might never be a reunification, and the greenback actually fell to about thirty-three cents of the dollar. That was how little. In fact, the greenback fell, jumping ahead a little bit to to, to a lower value than the Confederate currency, which is remarkable. Ultimately, of course, the Union did win the war. The greenback was ultimately redeemed for a hundred cents of the dollar. And the people who who kept the faith and bought those inexpensive greenbacks, of course, uh, they made out uh, like bandits. And, and Lincoln was very angry at the people who were selling greenbacks who didn't have faith. He didn't consider this to be a, a financial decision. He considered them to be all but traitors, betting against the, the credit of, of the Union government. So to put it in, in context, uh, if you bought a greenback, you know, let's say, I don't know, it was $100 or $200 or $500 of greenbacks. Could you take those greenbacks and go buy flour or milk or eggs? Or what did you do with those greenbacks? Absolutely. The, when the Congress passed the greenbacks, they didn't really know if merchants and others would accept them. They had to accept them. They didn't know if people would want to carry them around or if they would just use them to buy bonds. It turned out that people loved them. Uh, they were currency uh, accepted uh, everywhere. They were much easier to carry than coins and, and way more easy to carry than notes of all the different banks, which had a different value. If you used a, a note from a, an Ohio bank in New York, it had one value. If you used it in Pennsylvania, it had some other value. These had basically the same uh, value uh, uh, anywhere you went. So if the store said something was worth $5 and you gave them uh, five greenbacks, you, know, you, you got $5 worth of value. But if you were trading overseas uh, with the British or the French or whoever, uh, you had to put up uh, increasingly uh, more than five greenbacks to get what 
what the French would give you or the British would give you for $5 worth of gold. So in terms of the foreign trade value, the greenback value uh, as a percentage of the gold value uh, fell quite a bit. Who were the people buying the greenbacks? Were they banks? Were they agents authorized by Salmon Chase? Were they foreigners? Who were actually buying the greenbacks? Well, they were distributed by the government. So the government had all these um, expenses, which it couldn't meet them to pay the soldiers, uh, to buy uh, arms uh, and, and ammunition, uh, clothing for the soldiers, food for the soldiers. And once they had these greenbacks, uh, Chase began paying them out as uh, soldiers' salaries. He took some of his own paying greenbacks. Uh, he foisted them on uh, on arms makers and so on. And once uh, all these various vendors had them, uh, they began to circulate. The soldier or the soldier's wife often would get the greenback and she'd go to the store. And then ultimately the, the uh, greenbacks would be redeposited uh, in, in banks. And in this way, they began to circulate throughout the economy. And as the Union Army uh, began to take territory in what had been Confederate territory, they discovered that the, that the Confederate merchants also accepted them because they realized that, that these were money good, that people accepted them. They were they were a legal accepted currency. And uh, this is this is a great surprise that they were extremely popular. They've been very afraid that, you know, if the tendency to inflation, if you do this once, you're going to do it again, and again, and again. And the first issue was 150 million. Of course, they ran out because the cost of the war kept mounting and mounting. They did another issue. Uh, and finally, one more issue. And at that point, Lincoln said no more. Uh, he was afraid of, uh, of, of, of a massive runaway inflation, but, but they were widely accepted. And were there certain people who were close to uh, Salmon Chase who were helping him with the financing, people in the private sector, special agents, or how did he uh, deal with the banking community? Salmon Chase had a very strained relationship uh, with the banking community. Uh, as you noted, he did not have a financial background. Uh, he was somewhat suspicious of, uh, if I can use the term, New York bankers, big city bankers. In the beginning, when he, he wanted to borrow the bank's gold, uh, the banks all said to them, look, the system will work much better if you just borrow our notes and use those notes to pay the soldiers. And then we can keep the gold and use that as a basis for more loans. But Chase was a stickler for gold. He was very old fashioned. And um, as I said, he forced the banks uh, through the power of suasion during a wartime crisis to lend uh, to lend the gold. He ultimately turned, to get to your question, uh, for counsel to a Philadelphia financier who was also outside uh, the mainstream financial group. And this is a fellow named Jay Cook. Uh, Jay Cook was, was very young. He was very ambitious. He was very blatant about wanting to use his relationship uh, with the Treasury for personal gain. But he offered to Salmon Chase a deal that nobody else offered. The deal he offered was that Jay Cook, with his unrivaled ambition, energy, and marketing skills, would help Salmon Chase to borrow money, that is to sell treasury bonds, by floating them all across the country. And, and Jay Cook really became the alter ego of, of Salmon Chase at the Treasury Department. Were there conflicts? Yes. Uh, did Salmon Chase get too close to Jay Cook? Uh, undoubtedly. Jay Cook was helping with his personal finances, helping put up his kids on weekends and so on, his estates in Philadelphia, offering to buy them carriages, building bookshelves for his home. But did Jay Cook also, was he of inestimable value in, in financing the union? Yes, again. So um, as this is going forward, does Lincoln spend a lot of time with Salmon Chase saying, make sure you have enough money, or does Lincoln worry about military tactics and strategy, not so much about the financing? 
Lincoln basically leaves it to, to uh, Sam and Chase. Uh, once or twice, he steps in to help uh, lobby for a piece of legislation. He, he's very supportive of Sam and Chase's signature legislation, which is to create the national banking system, uh, which I touched on uh, in the beginning. But basically, Lincoln is leaving it to Sam and Chase to set up the income tax, uh, the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, Lincoln's a big supporter of the greenback, but but he leaves that to the, the, the particulars, which I'm not surprised they get pretty involved. Uh, Lincoln leaves to Chase and to a group of congressmen who were very important, uh, to uh, Thaddeus Stevens in the House of Representatives, to John Sherman, uh, a senator from Ohio, uh, to William Fessenden, senator from Maine, and, and a group of, of congressmen who were very involved in setting up this financial architecture. But Lincoln was more involved in the political aspect obviously in anti-slavery and very involved in, in trying to find uh, generals who could win the battles. And did the uh, system that was set up by Sam and Chase ever fail in the sense that they didn't have money to pay bills at any time, or they always, in the nick of time, got the money they needed? They really always got uh, the money they needed. As I said, they went through um, three rounds of greenbacks. So they, they raised $150 million, three times, a total of a half a billion in the uh, you know, before the war, the annual budget had been about 70 million. That gives you a, a sense of the scale. And the next thing that that uh, Chase did was um, uh, he promoted and the Congress uh, enacted massive taxes, which had never existed before. Income taxes and other taxes, excise taxes, taxes on professions, taxes on income, really a, a groundbreaking piece of legislation. And these taxes brought in hundreds of millions a year, uh, you know, huge sums. And this, um, of course, enhanced the financial ability of the government. And they did something else, too, which was because the government had revenue coming in, real revenue, and not just paper that was binting, it could go to the private sector and ask for loans. It could use the fact that it had real tangible revenue, revenue from the profit-making institutions and people, the people who were making income and paying taxes as a backstop and say, we're money good, lend us money. And this was the backdrop for Chase and Cook's uh, bond drives, which were the first really national investment bank drives in the country. And they raised the two to three billion dollars in bonds from the private sector and bond sales. And this became a tsunami. The Confederacy looked at this and they knew they were beaten. They could they did nothing they could they could do to match that. So what about foreign banks and foreign investors? Were they buying greenbacks or were they contributing other way to helping the North? They were uh, on a small scale uh, buying union bonds, but but they were very uh, dubious. Um, uh, Chase sent some representatives to England. He didn't want to go himself because he didn't. It would be too embarrassing if he were turned down. And um, the British really were were suspicious that that the union would be able to finance the, the, the sums it was raising. They thought that would lead to massive inflation. Uh, they were very wary of uh, contributing the sorts of sums that, that the union uh, wanted. The British were also uh, a little bit on edge because the Union passed a series of tariffs, higher tariffs. The British took great offense, and these tariffs were mainly aimed at, at England. England was the great export of the United States of manufactured goods, uh, and they took great offense. Uh, Britain, having gone to free trade itself in the 1840s, that its uh, former colonies would try to restrict its goods. And so the, uh, the British were somewhat divided in their loyalties, although they were very anti-slavery. Once Lincoln um, uh, signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, the attitude of the British uh, warmed 
uh, towards the Union and towards the uh, the last year or so of the war, both they and uh, and the German states and financiers in Antwerp began to buy uh, greater amounts of bonds. But really, the bulk of it came from the United States. And uh, let's talk about the National Banking Act that you referred to earlier. So before this act became law, banks were created by individuals who owned them. They have, I guess, state charters. But what did the National Banking Act actually do and why did they need it? So each state uh, had its own uh, banking laws. They chartered banks. Some states uh, insisted that a bank within its domain have a lot of reserves in case everybody wanted their money back at once. Some states were very loose about it. So basically, you had uh, uh, more sober, uh, more reliable banks uh, in the East Coast cities, New York, Philadelphia, Boston. Uh, you had uh, what was known as wildcat banks in the Western uh, areas, uh, Indiana, Kentucky, Illinois, somebody would get together with uh, very little capital at all and he'd start just handing out notes you know, in, in return for some sort of reserve, some sort of deposit. And uh, people would uh, use the notes in stores. The stores would use it, hand them off to the next guy. And the hope was that the notes would get far away from, from home base because, uh, frankly, these banks didn't have the reserves to honor these notes if they came back. And as I said before, uh, the further you got a traveler, if he took notes from his home state, the further he got, the less these notes were worth, uh, the further he got. So it was a very balkanized uh, system of finance. Everybody was speaking a different tongue, a different financial tongue, a sort of Babelian uh, system of uh, finance and a very insecure system. There were very frequent uh, bank runs and failures, uh, both uh, north and south. And there was no one note in foreign trade that uh, Americans could use to buy goods from the British or French or so on. So what Salmon Chase wanted was to have a universal uh, a currency. The greenback was a universal currency, but they didn't expect that um, the greenback would last. The, the, the objective of the greenback was always to redeem it for gold after the war. They didn't have to do it, it wasn't the law, but they viewed that as an emergency currency. And remember, there was nothing behind it it was just fiat money and the faith and credit of the U.S. government. The National Banking Act created something different. Uh, investors were going to put up capital, and the capital was regulated by the federal government, not by the states. So they would all have the same proportion of reserves, all have the same capital backing. They would be required to buy U.S. bonds and keep those in reserve. So they would have a degree of safety, which the state banks uh, wouldn't have, and they their own assets would be backstops these banks. So they would be backed by the assets of their of their loans. If a bank made a loan to a steel company or an iron company, uh, that loan would stand behind uh, the loans of the bank uh, and they would be considered more reliable. And since the banks were required to buy uh, bonds of the treasury, this banking system formed a market for the treasury's bonds. So it was both a system, as Salmon Chase conceived it, to create a market for US bonds and to create a uniform system of banks and a uniform currency. Because no matter where the bank, a national bank was created in the United States, their notes would look the same, they would be backed by the same amount of reserves, and they would be worth the same. And this system lasted until uh, uh, 1913, and it performed quite well. And it, it, it fulfilled the purpose Chase wanted. It became the national currency, and it was honored around the world. During uh, the war, income tax was imposed. How burdensome was that tax on people? What was the rate? How, how much was taxed on one's income? 
it was a, a very uh, low uh, tax uh, on anything but, but very high incomes. Nothing was taxed in the first uh, $600 uh, and then $800. And that excluded the, the great majority of, uh, of people. Uh, the tax at first was 3%, and then it went to 5%. And then at $25,000, it went to uh, 10%. That's a lot of money. There were very few people who earned $25,000. We don't really know uh, how many people uh, paid the tax because there are no records for that, but we do know how much was raised. So to put it differently, we don't know how many people evaded the tax uh, either because we just, we don't have the figures, but they, the government printed figures in each town of, of what various taxpayers paid. And they did this to try to embarrass people on the thought that if, uh, you know, say you're a prosperous businessman, it was printed that, that you only paid a little bit of tax uh, your neighbors might get suspicious and report you. And uh, you know the best that I could uh, deign was that that most people uh, honored the tax during the war. It raised, as I said, several hundred million dollars a year. That was four times or so the entire national budget uh, pre-war. It only became unpopular uh, after the war when the tax remained in force, but people then began to question the need for it. And uh, Ultimately, um, it was uh, rescinded, although the, the Internal Revenue Bureau remained, and it, uh, it continued to collect other kinds of taxes uh, until finally, of course, uh, Woodrow Wilson reinstated the income tax in 1913. So the architect of this financing system, scotch taped together in many different ways, was Salmon Chase, but several times he threatened to resign and handed in his resignation letter to Lincoln. Why did Lincoln uh, never accept it? Yeah, the the um, the personal story underneath the financial story is the very uneven relationship between Chase and uh, and Lincoln. Chase was never at peace with the fact that Lincoln had been um, the nominee and not Chase. In fact, the first time he met Lincoln, when Lincoln was president-elect in Springfield, they were talking about Chase coming to work as Secretary of the Treasury. Chase um, couldn't help but blurt out that it bothered him that he hadn't carried the Ohio delegation to the convention. He was still stewing about the, the convention. Once he, he took office, uh, he began to send Lincoln uh, little uh, prickly notes. And after the Battle of Bull Run, uh, uh, someone wrote an article in the newspaper saying it hadn't been a military failure. It had been an administration failure. And Chase clipped the article uh, and wrote on it, there is too much truth to this and sent it to Lincoln. Uh, just what Lincoln needed was the backbiting uh, from his own uh, cabinet member. And, and this went on. Anytime they had uh, a little falling out, usually because Chase wanted somebody appointed that Lincoln didn't want to appoint, or in one case, because one of Chase's cronies who had been appointed was caught with his hands in the cookie jar, Chase resigned. And Lincoln had to go over and talk him out of it. Lincoln would always, uh, in effect, humiliate himself one time he had Chase's uh, resignation letter and he strolled over to Chase's residence in the evening and he, he put his long arm around Chase's back and with his other arm, he handed him his resignation note and said, uh, now, Mr. Chase, here's a paper I want nothing to do with. Uh, take it back and be reasonable. And he always, he always insisted that uh, he would make his decision based on the merits of Chase's service to the country and not on the personal difficulties that, that Chase uh, provided them. Uh, and, and, and this continued even when Chase uh, covertly ran against him for the nomination of the Republican Party in 1864. Uh, uh, Lincoln was being warned 
that Chase was conspiring against him. He was conspiring against him. And yet, um, even then, he kept Chase uh, in power. So we've talked principally in this discussion about the North and the Union effort to finance the war and how uh, Salmon Chase, working as Secretary of Treasury, developed a system that enabled the North to really finance its war, which was quite expensive war. At the time of the, in 1860, the budget of the United States was roughly $50 million. And then I think if I got it right, the numbers for the entire war cost how much? How much the Lincoln? Uh, three, the, a little more than $3 billion. $3 billion is what it cost for the war. And the, prior to that, the budget of the United States was only $50 million a year. So um, as you look back on it- That's 60 times. Right, 60 times. As you look back on it, had there not been a good a financing mechanism to uh, finance the war, the Union could well have lost, despite its being bigger and, uh, you know, and, and much more populous. Is that right? I think it is, because I think the, the aim of the South wasn't to conquer the North. It was to make the, the North grow weary of the fight. And uh, one of the ways you could do that is by inflation. And, uh, and you know, there was inflation in, in the North. It was... Um, there's inflation in any war, it totaled about 80%, 80% over the four years, which isn't nothing. But interestingly, it was the same as the U.S. experienced during World War I, and the same as the U.S. experienced uh, during the World War II period. Because both of those periods, it had a much more advanced financial system. So it's really quite a testimony, I think, that the uh, the North was able to keep the financial pain relatively to, to reasonable uh, limits and, and, and to be able to continue to finance the war. So we've been in discussion uh, with Roger Lowenstein about his book, uh, Ways and Means, Lincoln and His Cabinet and the Financing of the Civil War. Um, we're going to talk in our second session about how the South dealt with its financing needs. Obviously, they uh, had much more challenges than the North did, but they obviously try to deal with them in, in the best ways possible. So thank you very much for this part of the conversation, uh, Roger Lowenstein. David, thank you very much. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.